0: Climb a tree, and it, then talk, or sit silently and listen to our thoughts with illusions of song. hello kindred spirits and welcome back to the History Chicks recap of the Netflix series and with an E you have stumbled upon episode 2 I'm Beckett Graham And I'm Susan Vollenweiter.
1: This one is called I Am No Bird and No Net Ensnares Me. It's directed by Helen Shaver, who is actually an actress and a director. She
0: directed episodes of Orphan Black. Do you ever watch that? No, but I am kind of dragged into seeing Vikings. Um, Okay. She did four episodes of Vikings. So if there's darkness and realism and dirt, you got the right person for this one. She also directed 13 Reasons Why, which is getting a lot of controversy
1: on Netflix, the Netflix version of it. It's based on a book, and it's about a girl who commits suicide, but it's about so much more. It's about bullying and friendships and a whole bunch of issues that deal with teenagers, but that is, like, very realistic.
0: So the name of this episode... Let me say it again. I am no bird and no net ensnares me is a quote from Jane Eyre as all of the episode titles will be. And in this case, in Jane Eyre, the story, Mr. Rochester is trying to apologize for wronging Jane Eyre, i.e. he's married secretly and has been tricking her the whole time. He has betrayed her trust and her love, okay? Note to self, that's on the nose for this Anne with an E episode. And Jane responds by saying, I'm gonna paraphrase. I don't need this treatment. I can go and make my own life without you. So that is how it applies to this particular episode of Anne with an E. More than any episode we will encounter. This episode is nearly a hundred percent off book. And by nearly I mean 99.98% off book. Anne Canon? We don't need no stinking Anne Canon. So if you can just enjoy it on its own merits without trying to relate it to the book, you don't even have to try this time because the book's not there. So um, so sit back and enjoy it. You don't have to stress out about the incongruity of it all. And I do have to say, um, our friend Chris, she did point out that heurists that are all up
1: in arms about this show not being true to the original story, Chris said no one is mentioning the 1985 version is far from pure. You know, they're using that version as being the version, but the original version isn't exactly like the 85 either. So she had an excellent point there, I thought. I did make my recipe from the Anne of Green Gables cookbook. I did make the raspberry cordial, although I made it with a twist and I've named it Not Your Childhood Raspberry Cordial because I took it and I froze it and then I slushied it into balls and then I poured lemon vodka over the top of it. That's what I'm drinking.
0: Nice. Well, I don't. I didn't really prepare, uh, culinarily, for this episode. I, I promise to rectify that next time. <laughs> so, um, so if you don't mind, Miss Susan, why don't you read the Netflix synopsis for this episode, and then we'll get right into the recap.
1: The Netflix synopsis: A determined Matthew embarks on a journey to bring Anne home. Marilla is sick with worry, but struggles to express her emotions. Oh,
0: concise. That's- I know. (laughs) So let's get right into the recap. The cold open begins. It's the cherry tree, the original cherry tree, Anne's first friend in PEI. And her first real human friend, that would be Matthew, is kind of paralyzed. He's not really sure what to do. And his emotions, I mean, the man is shaking.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, I love the way that they started this because it's like all white like clouds, and they are peeking through a hole in the cherry tree at Matthew back at the train station talking to, you know, our old friend, the conductor. Almost like
0: they're pulling back a curtain.
1: Oh, yes, actually. Very good.
0: You know what I miss? I used to go to this movie theater called the Crest Theater in Wichita, Kansas, and every time before the main um, attraction would start, the curtains would close, and then they would reopen and the main movie would start. Oh, I totally love that. For some
1: reason, okay, you know I garden and maybe it's because I've been spending so much time outside recently, but I was plant fixated on this whole episode. So I kind of wondered, when exactly do cherry blossoms bloom on Prince Edward Island? We're looking at early May, maybe the beginning of June, but I have a few problems later on. Gardening problems, I know. I
0: know. This is like when people play a cello in a movie and I get all bent out of shape. (laughs) (laughs) okay next scene so we go right from Matthew at the train station to seeing a
1: steam train pulling up to another station Anne gets off it she looks really confused and Matthew and the train masters voiceovers are talking about when Anne got on the train back in Avonlea
0: that steam train, that exact steam train, number 136, is still used, by the way, as what they call a heritage excursion train on the Simcoe Railway.
1: So I love that. if you want that. to ride
0: the train that's featured in this series, it's still running. Um, We'll give you a link. I did not realize what a fandom steam engines have. I'll tell you that much. Oh, really? Because I have a friend who he's totally into trains. And
1: when he and his wife were moving, the fact that they bought a house that backs up to the train tracks in outside of Chicago is like this huge thrill because he can go out there and watch trains. It's a big deal, yeah. And that Simcoe Railway Station, I mean, it's a tourist destination. The pictures that I saw, it kind of looked like the smaller Avonlea train station to me. So maybe that's where they filmed it. It's in uh, Tonningham, Ontario. Sure looked like it.
0: Maybe we can get some links to actual filming locations later. I didn't um, look that up for this one, but... Oh, Yeah. So Anne looking around, is she sort of wondering where to buy a ferry ticket? You know, you're looking for the sign, everyone's bustling around, you're not 100% sure what your turnaround time is. Do I have to hurry? I need to locate where I need to go, I think. I have to tell you, I am sorry. I'm unforgiving. It is pretty shameful not to have sent someone with her. And that is an echo of Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author's real life being sent across the Wild West of Canada at 16 with no escort. And I think it shows a lack of care and a lack of respect for Anne. I mean, she's not even put into the care of a stranger lady. You know, like, keep an eye on our girl, make sure she gets a ticket, which is the least they could have done. Is had that fish guy at least find a woman and hand her off. You know, the fish cart guy that they sent her with. I mean, it's just... (sighs) I totally agree,
1: completely. And even the conductor, when that voiceover, he says, you know, did she run away? And Matthew's like, No, actually, says Matthew in my head, we sent her away on a fish cart.
0: So Matthew decides to go get her and maybe he can catch the ferry boat. So he's off. He has made a decision. So Anne is approached by a, uh, let's see, Susan has in the notes that he's a skeevy guy. Honestly, he's pretty respectable looking. Overly smiley, I'd say. Purposefully ingratiating. His main purpose is to kidnap. And nefarious purposes, I'd say, what he's taking her for, the average age of girls taken or bought from their parents for those reasons, was 12 years of age. Mm. Mm. I have to say a girl headed home in all innocence might well have fallen for this sort of thing, because he really does look respectable. He's not decrepit or dirty. He's well-spoken. He's touched his hat brim, you know. But Anne's rough start actually helped her, don't you think, here? Oh, Oh, completely, and I thought exactly the same thing. Although, I thought it was interesting they cast
1: a red-headed guy.
0: Now, as uh, the red hair, half of this place is from Scotland, so I don't know that I'd be that surprised by oh. <laughs> the recessive <laughs> gene I- emerging.
1: I can imagine a lot of kids going with him. You know, I uh, wondered what the age of consent was in Canada at the time.
0: Is it, is it 12?
1: It was actually, it was raised from 12 to 14 in 1890.
0: Wow, how enlightened.
1: I know that. Wow. It was 12 up until 1890. Uh, More uh, props to the makeup department. She had like dark circles under her eyes. I mean, she's very realistic. She looked like me coming off of a train or an airplane. You know, big bags under my eyes. My braids disheveled. Okay.
0: So those little boys who might have been the only thing actually stopping him from chasing her down are probably going to fall for it unless their dad literally steps off the train right when the camera goes away. There seemed to be some kind of some kind of epidemic of ransom. There was a famous case in 1874 called the Charlie Ross case that started it all. And then, of course, it kind of ended this era with a giant bang in 1932 with the Lindbergh baby. It was a theme in literature. There's a kind of a funny story called The Ransom of Red Chief around the same time that Anne of Green Gables was written, where these two crooks take a little boy and he's such a handful that they have to pay his father to take him back. Well, you know, these boys,
1: I, like, I, I was like, oh no, the boys are going to fall for it. They didn't have any suitcases and they were just kind of watching the train, like pointing at things. So I wonder if their parents were like in the neighborhood, you know, this guy's going to have to you know, hit up a lot of kids before he can get one kind of situation. I don't know. I'm being optimistic and that their parent was right there.
0: Well, the other bystanders do look, but it seems like they're more irritated about Anne's loud voice and running than the situation, which maybe they don't comprehend what is happening. Yeah, Yeah,
1: maybe, maybe. So next thing we see, it's nighttime and Matthew is totally out of breath. He's leading his horse up to a stable to try and get a new steed. He's so urgent. He needs to get to Charlottetown. But the people at the stable are not for it. They're like, sorry, these horses are all taken for by the hotel guests." But fortunately, a wagon drives up and he recognizes the people in the wagon.
0: So I thought it was pretty nice of the stable guys because they are under no obligation to have some strange man drop off his horse. Mm-hmm. He will take care of Matthew's horse if Matthew wanted to give him a little bit of a rest and so his horse is in a good place but that neighbor Sam I guess he screams out is going to he said the vessel and I was wondering what that was is it does that mean the ferry and I don't think it does it looks like produce Cargo goes to the same dock area, but to a different place because cargo ships usually went down to Massachusetts. And it was easier to sell your stuff there and get it there faster than trying to sell it into the interior of Canada. So a lot of farm stuff would head straight down to America from there. Hmm.
1: Okay, this is where I kind of had some problems again with the gardening. If the cherry blossoms put us in late May, early June, in the back of that cart, there was beets. Radishes. But the May crops of Prince Edward Island consist of asparagus. That's it. That's late May to early June. And it's not until later in June when you get like beets and radishes and broccoli and greens and cabbage and, oh, yeah, cherries. It looked like really fresh produce, though, I will say. If it was at the grocery store, I would totally buy it.
0: I'm growing radishes right now, and honestly, you don't have to do a thing about them. You just fling them out there, and they just take care of themselves and get big, and none of the bunnies have eaten them. I don't know. It's like a dream crop come true. I hope I really like radishes. (laughs) I don't, but I hope you
1: do. They're really pretty. I always want to like radishes. I always want to like radishes. I always want to like Brussels sprouts, and I never do on either one of them.
0: I like radishes with, and a French friend introduced me to this, you kind of drag them through some butter and then dip them in salt, like the big fat flaky kind of salt. Mm -hmm. And it's a a super good um, combo. Okay, I'll try that. I'll give you some radishes. I only have like 9,000 of them (laughs) out. So the next thing we see is Anne is at the passenger ferry to Nova Scotia in Charlottetown. Um, She's bought her tickets. So I hope that they gave her a little pocket money to buy the ticket. I mean, you know, obviously they probably did because it doesn't seem like there was any trouble with that. And so she walks onto the boat and has a very wistful look back at old Prince Edward Island. You know, the life that could have been. You can see it in her face quite clearly.
1: Mm, Maybe we should call it like the camera look. You know, she's trying to take a mental picture of this place so that she can always remember it. But
0: she looks so sad. This boat looks like the ferry called, and it rhymes and I don't mean it to, the A.W. Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, is what it looks like in photographs. And so if it is that boat, she leaves at noon, which I can't tell from the lights if we've got this correctly. She'll leave at noon, Friday, and they don't arrive till the next morning at nine in the morning. It's a significant use of time.
1: Although now now the ferry from PEI to uh, Nova Scotia is only like 75 minutes.
0: There were a couple of interim stops. I wonder if that's what took so long. You had to unload and reload. Like if these were also used as supply ships, I wouldn't be surprised if there were significant delays along the way.
1: Oh, that's an excellent point. So the next thing we see, Anne, is on the boat. The boat is going out to sea. It's kind of, a, you know, in Titanic when... I'm king of the world. It's that shot of the bow of the boat cutting through the water. But Anne is cuddled up right in the very peak of the bow. Just She just kind of curls up out of the way and hidden. And in her head, she's having all those hurtful words from her fight with Marilla. They're just like playing on a loop in her head.
0: So Marilla has become another flashback in the series of flashbacks. That makes me feel very sad. Mm -hmm. So there's no accommodation for her at all. I don't know if that's the function of having the cheapest ticket. She's laying on the deck with no concern for her welfare at all. Speaking of the Titanic, you remember how everybody was saying that those third class passengers had it easy on that boat? Even though we look at it as super sparse accommodation. Mm -hmm. So maybe third class passengers were in the fend for yourself zone. Uh, everywhere before the Titanic. And this is, you know, the years before the Titanic.
1: Maybe they only got deck space, you mean? Yeah. And not any kind of seat. That's certainly possible. Um, Where she was, I mean, it was probably the most protected because the wind would be hitting the bow of the boat, but she's right behind this, you know, the metal of the boat in the, the bow peak. So it's probably protected, but still cold. And I also wondered if she was concerned about skeevy individuals on board after having had that run in. At the train station. Oh, yeah. And she's just kind of, like, hiding out by herself and just, you know, hiding.
0: Ugh. So now, many vignettes all in a row. Let's call it, what is everyone doing? So you've got exterior of Green Gables at night. And Marilla's inside alone. She goes outside to look at the road, then back inside. She's pacing. Let's cut to Matthew traveling in the back of the wagon of unseasonable radishes. And then- <laughs> Um, then back to Marilla going into Anne's room and back to Matthew, there's no dialogue during this thing, but the emotional stress is very, very apparent. Oh yeah. And she goes into Anne's room and that
1: ribbon that played such a crucial role in the last episode, you know, she tied it on Anne and gave Anne something of herself symbolically that ribbon is folded up neatly on Anne's dress that Marilla had made for her on Anne's bed. So she's just in there going, oh, my gosh, what have I done? And then, you know, she's holding this ribbon like, wow, I am an idiot. Well, it is her fault. We've all done things that were wrong and we have no one to blame but ourselves. But that hurts. (laughs) Anne arrives at, I call it the creepy AF orphanage. (laughs) It's just like the scariest thing possible. It's nighttime and, you know, the crickets are chirping at night, but it's just it's just scary and dark shadows. So she's standing at the gate and she looks up at it with just this heavy sigh and this look of dread. And then she has one of those flashbacks to that mouse bullying incident um, from episode one. The amount of conversations that rerun themselves in her head is just got to be paralyzing almost. But she gets through the gate to the front door with that
0: going on in her head. But then she kind of hears a door unlock and she runs off. Well, and I couldn't tell if that click, the door unlocking, was real or part of the flashback. So I don't know. Did someone come to the door? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. But that just goes to
1: show you the realism of the stuff that goes on in her mind, if it was indeed in her mind.
0: Right. This orphanage, by the way, um, when she walks up and it says on the wrought iron gate, St. Albans Orphanage, which I fully expected a thunderclap and a flash of lightning because that's what it looked like. Uh, St Albans does not seem to be a real place. Though it is certainly worth noting that St Alban himself is brace yourself, the patron saint of torture victims and refugees. Oh my gosh. There's two St Albans churches in Nova Scotia, but
1: I don't none of them had a orphanage. But yeah, that wow, that patron saint thing. Good job Beckett.
0: Good job person that put it in in the first place. I know.
1: <laughs> that building though, a part of me was like, Oh my gosh, this building is gorgeous. And you know, they had to de-gorgeous it so it's like to make it creepy. So there's like dead vines growing all over it.
0: But it could just be a trick of the light. And I'll I'll talk about this later because in the morning it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, at
1: night it's super creepy. I mean everything is, right? Uh but did you see that iron work on the gate? Yes. So beautiful. I mean I,
0: I wrote down that's when Blacksmith was blacksmiths. <laughs> I put down that ironwork though. <laughs> in the outline, Susan has written super cool opening credit sequence that I'm still not tired of. I, in fact, in my notes wrote, <laughs> I fast forward through the credit sequence or go get a drink more like, full disclosure. that's funny well you know what I'm glad that
1: I watched it because I saw a quote that I didn't see before and it was uh will you swear to be my friend forever and ever which is actually from the book I don't think we talked about that one the first episode we didn't no I don't know did they just slip it in there I didn't go back and check but I was like oh
0: I'm glad I watched it because I love that quote
1: because it's from when she and Diana had sworn their friendship to each other
0: That theme song, by the way, is by a Canadian band called The Tragically Hip. It's called Ahead by a Century. And um, I was reading an article in Rolling Stone that called it a beloved Canadian band. I have to say in the 90s, it was number one, number one, number one all over Canada. In, uh, well, let's see what year, 1996. They just had a farewell tour, this band, and all of Canada lost their mind. You know, Justin Trudeau himself went to the last concert. It's very big, but I'd never heard of them. But then again, I was in my 20s when this was popular, and I was more into electronic music. So guitars <laughs> are not my thing, but I've seen the movie Singles, and that's about the same time period, I think. So proto-grunge, maybe, is what you call love, this kind of band. I love the name, though. Tragically Hip. I have um, in my mind that that is a quote from another poem, but I'll have to let that percolate because it's not rising to the top.
1: That's okay, because the opening credit sequence happens on every show, so you can look it up and we can talk about it next time. All right. It is daytime, and Marilla has the French boy who works for them quickly hitching up the wagon, but she, she's like, I'm in a hurry, I'm in such a hurry, but she stops to give him chores before he opens the gate to, so she can drive out. You know, she's going, quick, quick, let's get going, and by the way, continue with the barn work. Stack
0: the wood in the kitchen. <laughs> Poor old Jerry. Everyone's <laughs> screaming at you. You know, your fingers stop working when you're trying to hurry. Your boss is standing over you, making you work faster and
1: stressing you out. You know about that.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I did, but don't anymore.
1: <laughs> this is me applauding once again.
0: <laughs> so, Rachel Lind is running. Yes, running. I, you know what? 10 points for Rachel Lind, who probably hasn't run since <laughs> mm, ever. Um, she is calling to Marilla to stop, 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 stop. And she tells Marilla that they're looking out. They're at the crossroad and they saw him leave with such haste. They assumed he was going to get Anne, And when they didn't see Matthew come back, Thomas, this is Mr. Lind, went out after them. Thomas will do whatever Rachel tells him to. So Rachel has told her husband to go after them and he has done it. And so what can you do, Marilla? What can you do further? Thomas will go. If they're in a ditch, he's strong enough to pick them up. He's a man. He has money in his pocket. You have to let him do it. Don't go off half-cocked. And, you know, you come with me. And
1: then Rachel, who I'm starting to like, and I loved her outfit, by the way.
0: Is that the same hm? waistcoat she's always wearing, though?
1: Uh, no, I think she has more. I think uh, there's. she wears two different ones in this particular episode. Because I was like, oh, that's a pretty fancy outfit she's got on there. But so I'm starting to like Rachel. I'm like, oh, you're so compassionate. And then she says to Jerry, she calls him boy. <laughs> she's like, Let the boy put the horse away. Like, oh, man, I was starting to like you.
0: I have to tell you, adults talk like that to children through this whole thing and through the book. Mm-hmm. It's just as like a need for Children to respect their elders in that way. And, and then, of course, he is in a servant class or a, at least a servant role. And so I guess mm-hmm. he takes orders from any one of his betters that shows up to give them to him. And I just want to throw this in here for you mm-hmm. to think about. Okay, Rachel doesn't even know about the brooch, right? She doesn't know anything about the brooch. I mean, there's no possible way, unless she has the ESP of the ages, does she know why Anne's been sent away, right? There's nobody that would have told her. Right. Um, So she is just pure acting on her friend's behalf. Her friend is upset. Um, I'm going to go over there and deal with it. But I just want to throw out there that if Marilla had not found that brooch, she'd have written Anne off forever.
1: (sighs) Oh,
0: I think if we had not found that brooch, we would not. I mean, the story could end right here.
1: So my disappointment shouldn't be directed at Rachel. It should really be directed at Marilla.
0: Why would you be disappointed at Rachel?
1: Oh, because she called Jerry a boy. I thought she was making like all kinds of progress and she is, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, But if you think about it, you know, she's a Victorian mother of 10 children. And there's got to be a point where you're like, you know what? My will be done.
1: (laughs) I think Rachel's just bossy by nature anyway. She gets Marilla off the wagon. She gets Jerry the boy to take care of the horse. And she brings Marilla inside to sit her down to get some tea. But we see Marilla inside the house. And she is just staring into space. Catatonic almost with just a sugar bowl in her hands.
0: Full fugue with that sugar bowl. So it is a beautiful morning. And um, we are with Anne right now. She did, in fact, sleep under the flowers. In the environs of the orphanage so she didn't go too far and she's probably familiar with that yard from having lived there so she found a little place she wakes up to the sight of flowers that's good When she hears a noise, there is a carriage or a wagon clattering along outside of the orphanage. And she looks through the bushes and you see a calculating look come across her face. It is the milkman, Mr. Avery. And he pulls up to the orphanage. This was like her
1: dream at the very beginning of the show. You know, like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to sleep in a cherry tree? So she's sleeping like among the ferns and the flowers and this beautiful spot. I mean, it was a very Anne spot. You know, she loves... Being in nature, it's very healing for her. So it's kind of weird that it was right outside this orphanage of horrors. And now she's got to get her wits about her so quickly. And I have to say, this show is overdoing roosters. Okay. It's like that's <laughs> its like that's how they say it's morning.
0: You know, rooster awareness. Funny, because I didn't think I noticed it at all. But I'll have to go back and look and see. But I was wondering, okay, so say... Mr. Avery, who is, in fact, a random element, right? Say Mr. Avery hadn't come. I wonder what her plan was. I mean, because it didn't look like she she's, was satisfied. Aha, yes, just as I thought. The milkman hath arrived, you know. She didn't have that look on her face. She had the, okay, 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 let's use this to my advantage. What, what, what can I do? But what would her plan be have been? Also, this is the point where I wanted to say, the place looks really nice in the morning. <laughs> the vines are still dead on the outside, by the way. But
1: yes, it does. It looks beautiful. And later we'll get inside and that doesn't change. It looks still looks gorgeous. Well, she's very opportunistic, right? She's always been. She's had to think on her feet. So she goes up to Mr. Avery and kind of cons her way, not only into his heart really quickly, but into his cart to go with him to take her to the nearest train station. She comes up with this crazy story that sounds perfectly logical, of course, I very wealthy aunt has called for her so she's she's going back to Halifax where she was born she's going to start her new life she says her years of torment and uncertainty are behind me i'll have to learn all manner of comportment but i feel i'm up to the task
0: (laughs) she's so cute i wonder though does she know mr avery or is she doing that name tag thing that you do at a work conference where you get the name off their badge with a side eye of course i know you hello It's on his wagon. It says Avery's Dairy. Avery Family Dairy is what it says. Oh, see, I was trying to freeze frame and I caught Family Dairy, but I didn't catch Avery. So Mr. Avery is certainly no match for Anne's certainty and imagination. That is for sure. Poor old thing. I mean, what can he say? She's already got her carpet bag in his wagon, you know? And I was thinking about this, that Marilla was so angry at Anne for lying and telling stories, but I almost wonder if telling the truth is a luxury that Anne has never had. You know, her lying is a survival skill, kind of like an outward extension of her imagination. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's easy for us to say, always tell the truth, but I wonder how many beatings she evaded by having to lie. That's
1: interesting because she does lie so naturally. Like, she's a very experienced liar. You know, in sales vernacular, it's, she assumes the sale, you know. She knows she's going for the clothes. She's just going to sit there and he's going to have to talk her out of it. And he can't.
0: <laughs> Here's some realism. They were screaming so loudly that no one got up and looked out the window. I mean, that's the part I'm not buying. All these housemaids that were up by five o'clock. And don't we have four-year-olds on the premises? Because I'm here to tell you, four-year-olds and birdies and the freaking sun have the same wakey-wakey time. (laughs) So I am completely shocked that we don't have 9,000 little faces dirtying up the window right now. And I wrote, well, maybe they're all in a cage. (laughs) Maybe So there's an overhead shot of Matthew's wagon um, transport uh, Arriving at the ferry dock And so he gets off and waves And he's all stiff because he's been sitting In a tiny little back of the wagon With no footrest for I don't know how many hours now And he realizes by looking through his pockets Oh no He has no money He has no way to buy breakfast He has no way to buy train tickets The return journey Ferry tickets Nothing Nothing And so the only thing he really has is a pocket watch. And so he heads off to the pawn shop. I don't know what they would have called it at the time. Yeah, it didn't have
1: the name on the sign, and I watched it on my big TV to try and see it, and I couldn't.
0: Here, Mr. Matthew, who's used to the small-town friendliness of everybody knowing your name, runs against... This guy at the pawn shop who obviously has heard it all. He's not unfriendly necessarily, but he's more like, yeah, it's an heirloom. Show me one thing in here that isn't an heirloom. I mean, really, that's not going to be your selling point. Plus, you've got a monogram on this thing. So it's going to be hard for me to shift it. Both of which things are true um, and make it very hard for Matthew. And we actually, although the guy angrily like computes or whatnot? We actually never see money change hands there.
1: I think he did get the money there because there was something in his pocket when he came out, like paperish. Okay. There That's you go. what I'm thinking. He sees a little boy selling newspapers, and he needs to find out when the next fairy
0: is. So he's talking with this kid. Number one, another child laborer. Who's mm-hmm. about eight or nine. Um, selling newspapers, and his his first little sentence out of his mouth is, Extra, extra, scientists predict greenhouse effects. What about that? I looked it up. A scientist called Nils Ekholm in 1901 predicted a hypothetical problem of global warming in the future. And I quote, By controlling the production and consumption of CO2 humans would be able to regulate the future climate of the Earth and prevent the arrival of a new ice age. He was the first one to actually call it the greenhouse effect, although similar predictions had been made in the past that humans' burning of coal was causing some climate change. So this is where the modern world meets Anne's world in a historically accurate context.
1: (laughs) There they are in the 1890s talking about the greenhouse effect being a bad thing, and it's still in our news today. So Matthew gets his money, I'm thinking, and puts it in his pocket and walks out of the pawn shop and walks into the street. And he's looking around. Then he sees out of the corner of his eye a girl with red braids going down her back. And he's like, oh my gosh, it's my aunt. And he has to go to get to her. So he goes through this busy traffic. We're not talking Avonlea traffic. We're talking big city traffic, bikes and There's a public transportation bus that's going by, and there's all kinds of carriages. And he's trying to get to Anne, only he doesn't make it because he's sideswiped by one of those carriages and knocked unconscious in the middle of the street.
0: So we are flashing back, back to Anne and Mr. Avery. And you know Mr. Avery does not want to get down off that cart, and Anne is fulfilling a great purpose for him. She's getting down, getting the empty bottles, replacing them with full bottles, doing all the physical labor. Mr. Avery, jolly as anything, is listening to her stories and he's totally entertained and all he has to talk to every single day at work is, you know, his horse. So this is kind of a treat for him. It seems like a guy that might like some company and like someone to talk to. And man, is and someone to talk to? And so she says the cutest thing. I'm told I'm fleet of foot. I'd rather be beautiful, but you can't have everything. <laughs> I love that line. That was great. And her elocution is so precise. Well, Mr. Avery's wife is a good cook, that's for sure. And so he asks if Anne is hungry, and she demurs at the beginning. Oh, no, no, I I couldn't eat a thing. And he insists, and she says, I'm quite famished, actually. I haven't had anything to eat since last night. And that could have been her downfall. He seemed shocked. Didn't they feed you at the orphanage?
1: But she doesn't miss a beat. She's like, oh, no, I was so excited to start my new life. I couldn't eat a thing. And she keeps going on, but... Mr. Avery's talking about his wife being such a good baker, and she does get wistful for a moment. Well, I was going to learn the lady at my last household in Avonlea was going to teach me, but it doesn't matter. And then she perks right back up again, and Mr. Avery starts asking her questions about her parents, and she she doesn't miss it. Like She was lost in Avonlea for a second in her head, but he's asking about her parents, and what did they do for the queen? And she's like, espionage. They couldn't be like a cook or a footman or something. Yeah, <gasps> she is off.
0: back in Princess Cordelia land. And also she is drinking straight from the bottle, which is gross. And it's warm milk too. If you think about oh. that, there's no refrigeration on this cart. So she is drinking warm milk straight from the bottle. Yeah.
1: But they did boil it back then to try and kill any contaminants. It was, it's not full on pasteurization like we have now. But um, yeah, even then, did you, oh my gosh, we had relatives on my mother's side of the family that had cows and they always thought it was such a treat for us city folk, which is really funny because I grew up in the country to go and get a glass of milk at their farm. They'd like give us this huge glass of milk with like, It was so heavy with cream and it was hot. And they're like, it's fresh from the cow. My brothers and I are like, mom's giving us that. You better drink that and you better be, look happy about it. (laughs) Look,
0: oh my gosh, it was so gross. I don't even think I like milk straight out of the modern jug.
1: Mm -mm. We see Matthew. He's lying with his head wrapped in a bandage and he's bleeding all over the place onto a beautiful settee. He's being fussed about by the woman whose cart hit him and her maid. Actually, it was really more of a carriage, wasn't it? But he kind of stirs, there's a clock dinging, and we see the clock up close, and we see that it's five o'clock. And the people are telling him he has been out for hours. And he knows five o'clock, he had to get to the ferry. It's five o'clock. He can't be laying on some lady's settee, bleeding with a, into a bandage. He's trying to get up.
0: He's got to get out of there. He has missed some giant opportunity for financial assistance here. This woman feels guilty. <laughs> Yes. She's having her servants serve him water in a, I don't even know, Czechoslovakian amber cut crystal (laughs) glass. She has called the doctor. He's been there for hours. I mean, the guilt money alone, he could have paid for his whole fare. So maybe you're right. Maybe he did get money for his pocket watch at the pawn shop. I think he did, but, yeah, I, that's just not Matthew,
1: though. Is Matthew really going to try and con someone out of money? No, it's he just got con. Fun.
0: I bet she would have offered. I bet she would have pressed it eagerly into his hand. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's true. But he,
1: she also has this kind of crazy acting man in her house with just her and her maid. I didn't see any other men there. So propriety must have been, you know, Like, okay, let him go, let him go, (laughs) I would think.
0: Maybe, because the very next thing we see is Matthew with his housemaid tied bandage flapping in the wind like Jack Sparrow at the ferry railing. Maybe the same very Anne had been on the night before, anxious about his journey's progress. Yeah, he seems
1: to be running about 24 hours behind her.
0: So we're going to cut back and forth between
1: Matthew arriving at the orphanage And, again, it's nighttime, so it's the same creepy orphanage that Ann got to 24 hours before. So we're cutting back to him at night at the orphanage and Marilla at night at Green Gables. And she is in the dark house, and she is stress-cleaning, and she is stress-baking. And she is cleaning a floor, scrubbing and scrubbing, scrubbing a floor that was probably already spotless. Just kind of going back and forth to show— And there's no words, which I kind of liked about this scene.
0: Right. Well, and so Matthew is beating and beating and beating and beating on that orphanage door. And nobody comes. And I have to tell you, I would not answer the door either. (laughs) If uh I want anyone in that orphanage, he is staggering around. He's, you know, crazed with worry and pain and loss of blood. And he looks really not reputable by this point at all. And I would definitely not open the door and let that in my orphanage. Oh
1: no. And not I didn't see any lights on the inside anyway if they heard him.
0: Do orphanages lock
1: their doors? I guess they do, but that kind of seems weird to me. Why? Growing up in the country where people didn't lock their doors. Actually the town I live in now. I t- <laughs> hello criminal element, welcome to my town, but I would say a quarter of the families here don't lock their doors.
0: That is so foreign to me.
1: <laughs> I know. Weird, right?
0: Well, and also, you're thinking of keeping people out, but perhaps the orphanage wishes to keep people in. Of
1: course! That's it.
0: So, anyway, yes. That makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, evidently, there's another rooster, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it must be morning time. And Matthew wakes up on the orphanage front stoop, and um, <laughs> he's woken up by the housemaid trying to get out the door to get the milk, I guess. And he talks his way inside to see the matron because his little girl is in there. And he must have some kind of trustworthy face. There must be some kind of um, thing in his eye that speaks to people. Because the housemaid, although she does scold him, like, you've been fighting at your age, you know, pretty much. (laughs) You stink, also, because she offers him water to wash. Have you seen yourself? You need to be cleaned up before you talk to the matron. But somehow... Maybe she wants the best outcome for whoever, you know, quote, his girl is that's in the orphanage. Because I was thinking maybe she's one of the girls from the orphanage herself who would have liked nothing better than for someone to come take her out of there. So she wants to give Matthew the best possible outcome, I think, because (laughs) looking at him fresh off the yard is not good. That's
1: exactly what I thought, too, that she was an orphan grown up and working at the orphanage. That's interesting that we both had the same thought. So hmm. Yeah, it was it would be her dream, right? Is it every orphan's dream to have their father come back and or her a parent come back and get them, right? Right. And he did seem very sincere because he was, you know, there's been a mistake. My girl, my little girl is here. I came to fetch her.
0: I have just noticed that there is some weird backhanded kindness sometimes in in this society that we're looking at right now. Like Like the pawn shop guy is gruff and still gives him the money. Or the housemaid scolds him for fighting, but cleans up his head. And I don't know. It just seems that, you know, the guy says, I can't give you a horse, but yet I'll take care of yours. There's kind of, I have to keep the distance between us, but then I'll just do a good thing for
1: you. People are, I guess, you know, aren't they kind deep in their souls? Don't they want to help out? Is it not something we want to do? Help out our fellow man?
0: Well, then why do they have to be mean first? Because society beats them to be mean. <laughs> so it's morning at Green Gables, and I neglected to write down if there was a rooster. I'll have to go back and listen.
1: Yes, there was a rooster crowing, as a matter of fact.
0: So Marilla and Jerry have this, um should we say, awkward moment in the barn when she gives him a plate of some of her baked goods, her therapy baked goods. She's a mess. She is a mess. She is acting crazy. He can't believe she's coming out there to give him something. That's her whole purpose in coming out, is to hand him a china plate with delectable baked goods on it. When normally, you know, throughout the whole book, poor old Jerry Boot gets, I wouldn't even give this to the hired man. So something that is real bad can't even be given to the hired man. So I'm guessing the hired boy does not get the delectable, freshy fresh fluffy from the hot oven things often no and
1: she is so awkward she's got the plate in her hands and he's like shoveling shoveling hay no he's forking hay what is that word called <laughs> he's dealing with the hay he's handling the hay situation and she comes in and she just like holds the plate out to him and she's her hair is all over the place And she's just holding this plate, looking at him like, you do something. I don't know what to do. This is just super awkward. And he's looking at her in the same awkward. What is the trick here? What is she doing? What's wrong? (laughs) Awkward meets awkward in the barn.
0: And I wondered if maybe somebody was starting to realize, hey, Jerry's a child too. But, you know, I don't think so. I just think it's he's the only person there available to interact with. I don't think Marilla is much to waste food so she spent the whole you know the last
1: 24 hours baking and cooking and now she's got all these I mean she must have used up all of her flour I can't imagine how much flour went into all those scones and breads that you see piled up on the table that was a lot of baking so I can't imagine that she would want to give that up you know throw it away give it to the hogs or whatever we're inside the orphanage, and it is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Did you see those arched ceilings and the shiny floors and the big windows? That place is stunning. There's a curved stairway. I know it's an orphanage, and I know that terrible things happened to Ann there, but I want to live in that house. Yes. All the staff is up. The kids are up and dressed. They're filing into the schoolroom. I assumed it was a schoolroom.
0: Or breakfast room, probably. All
1: right. Or, yeah, or something. They're all, everybody's up. There's all kinds of activity, but the matron is still asleep.
0: D R U N K, like Miss Hannigan, is what I'd say. (laughs) I'm not joking.
1: I got nothing, but man, that's the job to have, right? You can sleep in. Everybody tries to be quiet. They weren't, they aren't going to interrupt you unless it's an emergency. So Matthew is finally going to see the matron, and she is, uh, oh, so charming. That was sarcasm if you didn't hear it. She is still in her pajamas, and he's there to get Anne, and she says, Anne isn't here. She was adopted, and he's arguing with her. He's like, no, she came here yesterday. I'm here to get the girl with the red braids. And the matron's like, I
0: know who you're talking about. She's not here. And I think Matthew was under the impression, you know, my long quest has reached its end, and he's just bewildered and he cannot understand why she's not getting him and then she looks at him as if he is scum and says emergency (laughs) they
1: woke me up for this i wanted to know where the blood was actually i mean the maid did a really good job cleaning him up because i had a hard time seeing anything i didn't see any blood he looks i mean he looked a little disheveled but
0: i wrote should we be alarmed that the maid is such a wizard with wounds by the way (laughs)
1: okay it wasn't just me
0: so a dejected Matthew I have to say that is the mildest of the terms I can say for his state of mind right now he he doesn't know what to do now he has reached a dead end he walks outside and literally runs into old Mr. Avery again who laughs like oh you scared me the same thing happened yesterday only yesterday it was a little girl and you see Matthew's face and you know he's going to turn around and exposed that it was Anne, blah, blah, blah. So the light bulb has gone off on Matthew's face, although we don't get into the conversation between he and Mr. Avery.
1: We don't have to. It was too obvious. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do hear is Anne as a voiceover reciting poetry, and that kind of blends into Anne bravely selling poetic recitations at a very busy train station.
0: So we hear her say, where hope and fear maintain eternal strife, where fleeting joy does lasting doubt inspire, which is a little selection from a poem by Matthew Pryor called Henry and Emma, a poem upon the model of the nut brown maid. Okay, whatever <laughs> its merits, it is long, this poem, so long, hundreds of lines long, and it seems, okay, here's the plot from my perspective, but <laughs> Please feel free to correct me because (laughs) this is not my forte, but here's what it seems like. A guy was a stalker and got in various disguises to follow his lady love around the planet. And then after he succeeds in her loving him, tries to trick her into saying she doesn't love him by a series of what ifs. Um, Okay. Sounds awesome. Well, Jane Austen liked it. Uh, Anyway, she referred to it in persuasion, by the way, this poem. So, Evidently, it was in the zeitgeist of the world.
1: Well, you know what? And up until this point, you might have noticed that we have not said once, well, that's exactly like the book, because none of this is exactly like the book. None of it's in the book. But Maude Montgomery, she keeps referencing Jane Austen. She must have been a huge Jane Austen fan. So this is actually very accurate for something that she would have written if she had written it, I think.
0: And just like I said in the first episode, I think that the Mansfield Park adaptation is Fanny Price plus Jane Austen mixed as the character. And I'm kind of wondering if the writer and director didn't mix Anne of Green Gables with her author, Ellen Montgomery, through this whole thing, too. Because while this is off book, it's not off of the author's life. So what we're seeing is the other half of the character. right. And you'd think maybe
1: like the purists would appreciate that if they haven't passed out by now, (laughs) you know, like
0: popped a blood vessel in their head by going, "That's not in the book." Well, I have to tell you, if our Anne has memorized this, she has the best brain ever. The end. But I find it so tiresome. Like ninety-nine percent of all poetry on the earth, I can't (laughs) stand this. There you go. Did you actually read the whole thing? Yes, I did. Wow, like because I just I like read the
1: first few stanzas and then I kind of skimmed. At best.
0: (laughs) Well, I was trying to see if there was a deeper um, meaning to the story and everything. And I guess all I can think of is that so this Emma has fallen in love with him. You know, she's made a commitment and then he spends the next however many stanzas, infinite stanzas trying to say, you know, things like, well, what if I lost my money? Are you sure that you want to throw off all the trappings of young ladyhood and come live with me in the forest? And she's like, I swear, I'll put dirt all over me. I'll look just like everyone else. I won't brush my hair. I mean, I'm totally, you know, paraphrasing. But, you know, he's like, "Mm, I don't believe you. How much do you love me? But this would be the kind of story, though, that Anne would just
1: totally get into because there's, you know, travel and intrigue and love and not love and manipulation and there's all kinds of things that Anne as a story would have been attracted to. The words, however, and being able to memorize them, that's crazy to me. That is just crazy. (laughs) Uh, She was quite a salesperson just to get to that sale, though. I mean, she had to approach several people and give them different, you know, scenarios that she thought. I think she read these people. She looked at the crowd, she found a mark, she read the mark, and then she pitched the mark, based on what she thought their interest would be. She says to a woman, may I interest you in a poetic recitation spoken aloud with dignified emotion? Only a dollar. How about 50 cents? But then to a man, she says, a rousing tale of heroic deeds and acts of bravery. She's like selling to her customers. She sees these two women and she's like, oh, two women traveling alone. They must be romantical, you know. So she says, may I transport you for a few minutes with a romantical recitation replete with a tragedy of
0: love unrequited. She sells to two women who who are so delighted by the very thought of it, I think. They're so intrigued, like, how interesting. Here's my dollar. I can't wait. They have giant smiles on their faces. And so she begins. She begins with Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 14. Which has the merit of brevity. Hmm, let's. Just <laughs> so I know I am not poetry, Beckett. Okay, so Matthew comes in during this particular recitation. He better hurry. It's like fourteen lines long. He better hurry. So he starts calling her name, and she does hear him and see him, but continues her poem. And she keeps getting distracted as he gets closer, as he inserts himself into her personal space, and she even at one point puts up her hand, like talk to the hand, and keeps reciting. Angrily. And the ladies, the customers, have, as they say, we've heard quite enough. And they remove themselves from the awkwardness that is (laughs) unfolding in front of them. So Matthew and Anne fight about his reasons for taking her back to Green Gables. And basically, her position is, you know, leave me alone. (laughs) And her voice gets louder and angrier until a big, burly bystander intervenes. She has some good points here. Her point is, you cannot... Be holding sending me away over my head forever. I can't take it. Um, paraphrasing again. Her basic position here is I can't depend on anyone. So I'm my own family now. I'm proving myself. I've come all this way to find you. Isn't that enough proof that I really want you? And she said, I had to come all this way because you didn't want me. He didn't expect her to be arguing with him.
1: You know, he expected her to be happy to see him and off they go. He didn't have the imagination for the situation that actually happened.
0: She has been betrayed. Not only did Marilla throw her out, but Matthew let her go. So it's not just Marilla who is at fault here. She feels like, look, I can't. I cannot. My heart cannot take this. So it was getting dicey up in here. (laughs) Let me say, um, you know, Big burly bystander is, uh, you know, encroaching upon the space. Uh, I don't know if he's officially cracking his knuckles, but he has the appearance of cracking his knuckles. until Matthew brings out the big gun emotionally. We're fine. She's my daughter, he says. And the bystander's look was like, chicks, man. You know, like family, right? Like, oh, man. Yeah, I get it. And he immediately sat back down. But I think it was because of Anne's reaction to that word daughter. That was the key. That was the key. They made her turn around, and, and she ran to Matthew and gave him a big hug.
1: Well, I have to say, I didn't actually see the big burly bystander's reaction because my eyes were all misted over. <laughs> you know, he's just like, we're fine. He says, she's my daughter. Oh, my God, it's your daughter.
0: It's like, oh, my, that's right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I had to pause and go get some tissues. I, I didn't wasn't even
0: there. feel sad. Am I broken.
1: Oh, maybe you're just like holding on to the purist thing because, you know, the purists are going to be going, this is not anything like, I don't think Matthew would have done any of this stuff. I don't think Marilla would acted that way, you know?
0: No, no, no. It's not a purist thing. I don't know. I guess it just didn't. Uh... Oh, I cry later. I assure you. Not in this episode, but in future yeah. episodes. I, you know, I oh, say yeah. the word wah out loud as if it's a cartoon over my head. Yes, but not <laughs> on this one. I was like, well, that happened. There you go.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'm just going to say, and I'm not playing this for, for sad points, but, um, my father died two years ago and it's been hitting me really hard for some reason the last month or so. I mean, I have like sobbed several, I saw a commercial and I was for something and there was a bother in it and I just was sobbing. I was ready to cry over something like that.
0: That is very sad.
1: But I might've been sad and happy and everything, but back at Green Gables, there's slow, happy tears music as Anne and Matthew ride up on a horse. You know, they're outside, it's one of those beautiful, panoramic Prince Edward Island scenes, which I'm starting to call scenic porn. It's like, it's like, oh my gosh, you couldn't be any more gorgeous. And so here they come riding up. She's like on the front of the the saddle and he's behind her and the sun is lighting them beautifully. And it's just like, we're back. Anne's looking around like, I can't believe I'm back here. And they go up to the gate and they cut to interior of Marilla. She's wiping down a table and just breaks down in tears. But suddenly she hears a horse.
0: Marilla's probably scrubbed an eighth of an inch of wood off that table by now. <laughs> How would
1: anything shiny if she was scrubbing it so much? She must have gone when the camera wasn't on and repolished everything.
0: <laughs> so Marilla does look through that bendy glass window to see them riding through the gate. And Anne is looking around. It's not as joyful as it was before. There is an element of protecting of herself that wasn't there the first time she came, although she needed it more the first time, had she only known it. Marilla does that hiding with her back to the wall thing, like, and the music makes you think there's going to be some kind of emotional reunion. There isn't. (laughs) You know, Marilla comes outside and Anne looks at her with this huge grin on her face,
1: like, I'm back. And Marilla looks at Anne a little bit, like, she's happy, but no. She isn't. She's like, well, it certainly took you long enough to fetch her. Marilla is mad at Matthew, which throws everybody out of whack. Like, wait, what? Like, okay, my joy is considerably diminished. Thanks a lot for that. Yeah. I, I, I wrote down here, I need a screeching across the record. You know, the needle screeching across oh, the yeah. record sound effects. Like, it's like, oh, happy. You know, this big music like culminating in this happy moment. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> because that's what Marilla does.
0: So Anne goes inside, past all the baked goods of stress, production, and goes to her room, and you know what? The Snow Queen's happy to see you anyway, Anne, unreservedly. The old cherry tree will always be there for you, my friend. So that's good. She finds the hair ribbon that Morella had given her still there, folded neatly on her bed. Now, I will say, the ribbon does take on... I mean, just know that in future episodes, you'll understand why this ribbon is such a symbol. We don't know yet.
1: We are building an emotional attachment to that ribbon that on funny. our own.
0: So Morella comes in. Okay, maybe it was too public before for the apology that I'm due. Thanks, Anne. This is going to be where it is. She turns around fully expecting that apology. But What does she get? No. She gets a <clears throat> we're just going to have a simple supper. No need to stir yourself to come help me. It'll just be ready whenever you come downstairs. I mean, you know, Thanks for not making me work, et cetera. But like, that is not what I expected to come out of your mouth. It's super bewildering. <laughs> really bewildering.
1: If you're Anne, you're expecting that, you know, something. It, like, nice to see you, Anne. I missed you. Even like something. Little, but nothing. Just come downstairs when you're ready. That's it. Mm. So Anne cleans up and comes downstairs and meets still perfunctory Marilla. And the two of them get busy setting the table. It's just busy stuff. They are not saying a word other than words that have to do with the chore that they're doing. You know, do we need egg cups? Did you bring your laundry down? You know, they're not even talking like any emotion. They're just talking about the job. And Matthew comes in and he's like totally weirded out by the mood, the chill of the room. You know, when he comes in, it's like, wait, what? Where am I?
0: Even I'm weirded out and I don't have to live there. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's so bizarre.
1: But you see a lot about, you know, the backstory of how uh, Simple Supper goes on the table.
0: (laughs) So now you've got a lot of prop choreography. So those rehearsals are tedious, by the way. Pass the toast. Pass the sausage. Oh, let's all crack the egg at the same time. La, 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 la. Jinx. You know. (laughs) So there's been no words except for Matthew. The hilariousness of Matthew being the one that feels like he has to fill a silence. When has that ever happened in his whole life before? (laughs) Potato vines, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, We're going to get some horseshoes on the horse. You know, like he just, oh, poor little thing. I'm just not (laughs) sure if that's the scintillating conversational opener that we need.
1: No, you know what it reminded me of in Dirty Dancing, you know, when baby first meets Johnny and at the party and all she says is I carried a watermelon. <laughs> it's like super awkward thing to say. <laughs> like, I carried a watermelon. And then Matthew's talking about, you know, walking out to the potato barns. Like, <laughs> really? I walked to the potato barns. So speaking of the barn, Anne goes out to the barn to talk to her only friend. And that isn't Jerry, it's Belle the horse. And she's just, you know, hugging Belle and petting her and talking about her horrid adventure and how she feels that her future really is uncertain. And then suddenly Jerry busts into the conversation and Anne unleashes all of her anger at him until she sees the plate from the day before and warns him that he would better watch out because they might think that he's a thief too.
0: Poor old Jerry gets the cat kicking. I'm telling you, he is a tough little dude, though, and I like him very much, that Jerry. You know, he's like, I wasn't spying on you. I was sleeping. There was too much work around here because Mr. Cuthbert was gone looking for you, he says pointedly. Um, And also, he has a good point. Who cares what you say to a horse? I don't care. Yeah, I do. I
1: like him so much. He has very few lines, but that kid delivers them pretty well, I think. I adore that kid. And again, he reminded me so much of a brother, you know, like how my brothers would talk to me if that was me being overly dramatic. It's like, you know, chill out. I don't know why anybody would be worried about you.
0: Yeah, he's not particularly glad she's back, frankly. (laughs) Like, okay. Um, He explains about the plate. The lady brought it to me. He doesn't know her name. Anyway, he says, the lady brought it to me um, yesterday when she was distraught, he said, and there is a flash of subtitle on the at least the netflix version i don't know about the about the canadian version someone's gonna have to tell me but i can um, tell you it was not on the canadian version maybe they originally thought people would get it it technically means preoccupied which is what he does mean and what the subtitles say but i actually use it still distraught is what i say um to use it more like distraught So what century am I from, number one? But I think that the director wanted to make sure that we saw the milder form. Because if you look up that distrait, uh, it could be either thing. And I think she really wanted to make sure it was preoccupied uh, instead of, you know, tearing her hair out. Okay, well, I think it's a fail then. Because, man, it took
1: me out of the scene right then and there. I mean, if I'm reading a movie, like the whole movie, I'm fine. But this that one word in the whole thing... It took me a minute to get back into it, I think. So it was kind of a fail. I don't think it was worth the effort.
0: I think they should have just left it. Because, you know, if a French person says a French word in context, your mind fills it in. Like when you were a little kid trying to read the newspaper and you would just encounter a word and be like, eh. But you could get the context for most of the story without it. And you know he means when she was messed up in her head, right? So Mm -hmm. It's sad Anne when he walks
1: out of the barn and... Gets his parting shot in, but then we dissolve into very happy Anne running with Diana, who is equally happy to have her friend back. And they're talking about Anne's adventure and what she did and how she's being received back at home. And it's not exactly what Diana thought was going to happen.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, the word sorrowful comes out. I didn't think there could be a more Canadian word than sorry, but sorrowful <laughs> comes out. I wrote that down phonetically.
1: And Anne is just going, it's not possible. You know, Diana's telling her how upset Marilla was, and Anne's just not buying it. She's like, not possible. It's just not possible. I do have to point out, however, that they have, for one line, talk about the upcoming church picnic. So if the purists have made it this long, they're like, oh, yes, the church picnic. That was actually in the book.
0: (laughs) It's not the same church picnic, though. The words church picnic are about the only thing that's the same about it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's it. But Anne's point is here, I feel like they could send me away again. I don't want to get too attached because I'm not I don't feel like I belong here, really. It's pretty sad.
1: Very sad. She only feels like she's liked by Diana, maybe Matthew, and definitely the horse. That's it. Those are her friends.
0: So Anne heads back to the house. She's all alone. She spies on Marella hanging Anne's laundry on the line. She has a fond smile on her face. Touching that little pinafore, almost giving the pinafore the pat on the arm that she never gave Anne, who is just completely confused. Like, I do not even know how to untangle these emotional ties here. I don't know what's going on. She really doesn't. She has no idea. She repeats a quote from Jane Eyre. She had quoted this in the
1: first episode, right? Right. If all the world hated you and believed you wicked, while your own conscience approved of you and absolved you from guilt, you would not be without friends like it's her mantra or something i think so marilla not only looks very happy but her hair is tidy again and you know when she's petting like petting the pinafore um it kind of reminded me like before i had my first child and i got those first baby clothes and you just kind of held them like you were holding the baby it kind of that same emotion because she just looks so wistful and happy content there that's what it is it looks foreign on marilla's face she looks content
0: Is that the same thing? Okay, just yesterday, I found a little shoe. And I keep in mind, my son is 12. So his shoes look like I could put my feet in them and ski down the Matterhorn. I mean, they're giant. I found this tiny, tiny, tiny little pool shoe while I was looking through a forgotten closet. And I am just, I came downstairs with it in the palm of my hand and just kind of wordlessly held it out to my husband. He turned off his show and we both regarded it in complete silence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly like that.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: it's pretty cute. Wait. I think I might put it in one of those little um, shadow box frames.
1: That's funny because I have my kids, they each had little baby Converse, so there's two blues and a pink, and I have them on a shelf, like all lined up.
0: So we are going to the church picnic. The Cuthberts and Anne are headed to the famous church picnic that bears no resemblance to the one in the book, being watched by what we're calling the Snooty McSnooterson Berries in their posh picnic tent. They are glamping like nobody's business. There's rugs even on the ground. I don't even know. What he says, Mr. Berry, in his little freaking accent is, Wah sent her away? I to fetch her back. And then, I do hope those old cupboards aren't losing their marbles. My favorite line, though, <laughs> is the bewilderment of the mom when the little girl goes, I don't like this biscuit. And the mom just looks at her for a minute and goes, then don't eat it. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> well, it's little Minnie Mae, who is absolutely adorable, but she's acting like a
1: little kid. You know, she's just running around. And at one point, Diana actually smacks her like any big sister would do. It's like, stop. You know, she, Belts are kind of, you know, not like Anne belting, but, you know, like
0: a little sister slap. It's very real. Aren't as well behaved as their parents think they are. Minnie may freaking put that licked cookie back on the plate. By the way, she did. But Diana, I, you know, she's kind of like the real person in this whole family
1: because the parents are talking down about Anne being an orphan, and Diana's like, it's not like she wanted to be an orphan, but then her mother just looks at her, but she is one. (laughs)
0: I know, and what's really sad is Diana sees Anne and wants to run, you know, to say hello, and her mother holds her back. So it's the mom not wanting Diana to run out there, but then Anne, of course, takes that as Diana has been corrupted against her, kind of. Um, You know, although I don't know that she should have taken it that way. There was a lot more drama than there needed to be, because can't you circle back and catch her in a minute, kind of, you know.
1: Yeah, but given what has been happening to Anne, you know, she thinks she's going to have this great reunion back at Green Gables, and she doesn't have it. So having the same awkward kind of non, not like in her imagination moment with Diana, she doesn't see Diana's mom tell her to sit down. All she does is see Diana sit down and look at her with this weird look on her face.
0: Yeah, I guess so, that's true. Mm-hmm. We finally get to meet Mr. Lynde, though. I am so happy to see him. He is a smiley guy, and he looks, I mean, I guess he's either happy to be henpecked or used to it, but he is a nice man, and I wonder how long, how long did he roam the countryside before going home is what I want to (laughs) know.
1: And where did he go?
0: (laughs) Like, we never saw him. We never saw him during any of this trip, right? So where was he? Did he get on the ferry? Did he just give up and come home? Um, Did they have to... Send a guy across to fetch him from roaming around Nova Scotia? I don't know, but all Rachel puts him back in his place when he's getting kind of like, whoa, we're
1: so glad that you're back. And she's like, yes, dear, everyone appreciates your gallantry. Get off your horse there, Thomas, and just realize it. But I have to say, Rachel is so happy to see Anne. She is totally Team Anne at this point.
0: Uh, I don't think she goes away from Team Anne from now on.
1: Mm -mm. No, ever since the porch scene in the last episode.
0: Yep. So Anne overhears Rachel say Marilla was worried sick and the Lynns are happy that the big happy family's all reunited. And then it's implied in the show that Anne hears people not even trying to hide saying horrible things about her being an orphan. I have a very strong feeling that these comments are not anywhere but in Anne's head. I cannot fathom that that would happen because you've seen all these Victorians. They're so formal. They they practically call their own husbands, you know, Mr. This and Mrs. That. They might talk snidely among themselves, but when they're in public, they're not going to, they don't talk like that. I think that's all in Anne's head. Do you think so? No, but I think
1: it's indicative of the confusion of this particular scene because it isn't any, I don't think it's in her head. I think she really did hear them say these. I mean, they're like, they picked up a stray. And then this other kid's like, a stray dog. And then he barks. And this little girl talks about her awful red hair. And somebody else is like, do you suppose they met her to be a daughter or a servant? Yeah, you're right. These aren't things that people in proper society would say, which is why this whole scene is so confusing. Although I thought you would appreciate that (laughs) a woman says... I heard they plucked her from an asylum in Nova Scotia, and she's like at a lunatic asylum. And the preacher says an orphanage, but it could turn out to be one and the same. We just have to persevere. That's a preacher.
0: I am going to stand by my position that she is letting the stress about Marilla and then Diana make her mind run away with itself. I mean, yes, the boy barked, but he is a dirt bag. Billy Andrews, who wasn't a dirt bag just a doofus in the book but Billy Andrews is a piece of work and he needs a good kick but so him I'll give you he probably barked at her but I don't I really am standing by firmly that all the rest of that didn't happen if
1: you're right that means that Anne's imagination has taken over her reality and doesn't she need need to get medicated for that I mean she already had post-traumatic stress disorder right so this is like psychotic if she's believing that the voices in her head are the real thing
0: no i just think she's letting it run away with her like in the book when she makes up the haunted woods and she makes it so legitimately convincingly terrifying to her own self even though somewhere in the back of her mind she knows she made it up she gets scared that she's going to get grabbed by ghost babies on the way through until she doesn't want to go through the woods she has the power to convince herself of things
1: Okay, so what sends her over the edge? Because next, like in as part of that scene, there's little kids running around her calling her teasing her about being an orphan and being a garbage kid. And so did she really hear that? Or what was it that tipped her over that she takes off and runs towards the woods? And that's where Marilla follows her. So what is it that you think if she heard these voices in her head and thought they were real? What tipped her over the edge to physically
0: run off? I think it's the same exact thing as when she's on the boat and she keeps hearing Marilla's voice. I think she just imagines what people are thinking about her. And they're just they're just coming one after the other so fast, so fast, so fast. And she's looking around and she just sees these faces who are increasingly looking at her with great concern because she looks like a crazy person. And I think there's just a volume situation where she has to run away like it's getting to be too much for her it's like a flashback that's kind of happening in real time but only in her imagination i really really genuinely don't think those people said those things i don't Hmm. so okay maybe someday we'll meet wally beckett and we can ask her what she meant (laughs) but either way either way um Anne takes off in the woods and marilla finally realizes that it's up to her to go follow her And Marilla finds her curled up in a little tiny ball at the foot of a tree. And she's just weeping, weeping and weeping. And Anne calls Marilla out about how she doesn't want her. And she'd be better off alone without this. And she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to manage these feelings.
1: So finally, this is the thing that sends Marilla over. And she's near tears. And she says to Anne, I have a question would you forgive me? And then she confesses about how she screwed up everything. And she takes all the blame for everything that Anne went through over the last what is it, three days, two days? Mm-hmm. Um, she's going on about all the things she pushed her too far, but she knew that everything that she did was completely the wrong thing. And that Anne, if she can forgive her and find
0: it in her heart, then
1: maybe they could start anew. There
0: seems to be some school of thought that's probably still around that really frowns on adults apologizing to children for anything. And I really think this was a prevalent mindset in Avonlea. Like, your elders are your betters. The end. So not only is Marilla making herself uncomfortable in the moment, you know, it probably goes against all of her... Training, at least this kind of genuine apology. So I have to give Marilla some credit here for digging down to the emotional person she used to be and realizing as a person, she has wronged Anne grievously. She admits to being quick to judge. She admits to pushing her to fib. What were you supposed to do? And then she says, it's a wonder you came back to Green Gables at all. All you went through was because of me. Uh, so she fully takes the blame. And once she
1: starts talking, Anne doesn't say anything. She doesn't say any words. She doesn't chatter. All she does is just take the handkerchief that Marilla hands her and then just kind of leans up against Marilla to kind of say, I forgive you. But here's my question. Can they really start anew with all of that? I personally don't think you can start anew because there's some part of the relationship that will never be able to be healed. You know, there's an emotional scar there.
0: I think you can forgive, but I doubt that Anne will forget. And I doubt Marilla will forget either. And I actually think this will color her behavior toward Anne in a positive light from now on. She'll want to avoid falling into that trap again. Marilla will. I think she alters her whole persona because of it. So we needed
1: this episode so that Marilla could turn the corner?
0: I think so. I, You know, and I stand by my thought that Anne, any. Incarnation of Anne is not so much about Anne; it's about Anne's effect on other people. Mm-hmm. Really, I almost wonder if *Anne of Green Gables* is the story of Marilla. I, you know, at least in part. Yeah, I think
1: we talked about that during the Lucy Maude Montgomery episode. Right. Um, there was an article written by Margaret Atwood that defended that very point. You and Margaret Atwood could probably be very spot on, correct? But all, I guess, is forgiven, and they are starting anew because. Suddenly it's morning again, and we have another one of those scenic porn shots of the ocean and the bluffs and the morning rising. And I didn't write it down, but I'm going to imagine that there was a rooster crowing in there. (laughs) And Marilla calls Anne downstairs because they need to have a little tete-a-tete. Anne comes downstairs and says, okay, Miss Cuthbert, and Marilla says, you can call me Marilla not Miss Cuthbert. And <laughs> Anne, of course, has to push it. And she's like, well, can I call you Aunt Marilla? <laughs> and Marilla's like, no, I'm not your aunt. And Anne kind of calls her out. She's like, can't you imagine that you're my my aunt? Do you not have that ability? And Marilla's like, uh, no, I don't. And that scene right there, I actually played it over and over a few times because it's so, it just identifies who those two people are. And they, they will always be, because that's who they are inside. You know, Anne is always going to resort to using her imagination and Marilla is going to fight it the whole way.
0: You know what? That is in the book. Marilla and Aunt Marilla? Yeah. Yes! There's our other 1%. (laughs) So, speaking of names, Marilla says, we'd love for you to sign this and take ours. She leads Anne into the parlor where Matthew's waiting. They ask if Anne will sign the Bible and take their name. We want our name to belong to you. Did you cry here? No, that's what I said. I think I'm broken. No, I didn't cry. Oh, I didn't
1: cry like I did last time, but I got a little sobby. And then I froze the frame because I was like, oh, I want to see who was in that Bible. Because, you know, the family Bible, everybody signs it. They sign the births, they sign the marriages. You know, it's like the family genealogy is inside the Bible. And it started with uh, Enoch Cuthbert, who was born in 1769. And then he married Mabel in 1790 and they gave birth to nathaniel who wed virginia but the wedding date for them wasn't given who gives birth to michael marilla and matthew in 1833 1836 and 1844 so if you wondered who was the older sibling it's marilla who's michael there is no death date
0: prop guy fail
1: or it was it so hard that they couldn't write it down
0: sure Yes. So that's what we've told our superiors in the prop department. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so um, so Anne is thrilled with the concept, but she's a little bit deflated about the practicalities. Shouldn't we hold hands over a running stream or swear a blood oath? <laughs> and they're like, no. What can we do? What can we do? And they rack their brains and Marilla thinks, okay, okay, I have... Some raspberry cordial that I suppose it won't matter if we each take a glass in celebration. And that seems good. A bright red drink in a little tiny crystal cup is the proper amount of celebration. So they partake and they do a little toast clinking glasses. I could develop a fondness for this. Wink, wink. (laughs) So Anne is very, very happy. I don't ever think I've been this excited in my life. And she says... As if it is a wedding. With this pen, I take you, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, to be my family, to call you mine, and to be yours, for always.
1: Oh, it was so sweet. It was nothing like the book
0: at all. Well, and of course, Anne, uh, characteristically, takes it too far. There's a hilarious series of um, P.S., P.S.S. Like the new Guardians of the Galaxy 2 where there's five scenes after. There's one name and she writes it and oh no, I, I should write Shirley. Oh, should it be hyphenated? Let me add Cordelia. I should really be Anne of Green Gables which is a little nod to the book because she does say in the book it's a million times nicer to be Anne of Green Gables than Anne of Nowhere in particular. But I'm happy to say and proud to note that at the end, Anne gets Cordelia in there, officially in the Bible. <laughs> she must have signed it what four or five times. I I didn't count. Um, and you know what? So you might have had in Prince Edward Island church baptismal records before this, but Prince Edward Island began civil registration of births in 1906. And Nova Scotia didn't start till 1908. And that's where Anne, the character, was born, right? So she wouldn't have had a birth certificate. And um, honestly, as recently as 2014 in Kansas, a woman was allowed to use a family Bible page as one of her proofs of identity to vote. Wow. I think she was born in 1902. And then one of her grandchildren found some reference to her in the 1940 census. And those two things together, she was allowed to register as a Republican in Kansas, having moved from another state. So that's so recent for this piece of paper, which used to be the really only record kept of many. I mean, if you're born at home, that's your record of your existence. Mm-hmm. I had wondered, how official is this? But you know what? You've seen the casual nature of transfer of power over an orphan from one house to another, Right. We leave them here, we send them there, we put them on a train, we drop them at the orphanage, like nobody's in charge of tracking anybody. So Anne is officially down five times in ink in someone's family Bible. So she is as official as she can get in this time and place right now.
1: And she totally earns that happy fade to black music.
0: Yes. So woo, okay. Very minimal tie-ins to the book. So I wondered if that made it easier or harder for I'm going to call them the book people because purist sounds like I'm being dismissive and I'm not. Gosh, there's book people. And then there's fellows people, mm-hmm. which are different people. I mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe it's easy to, you can just be like, okay, fanfic, this episode, your favorite characters now with new adventures.
1: <laughs> Personally, I was sitting in the movie theater. That's funny. A while ago. And I saw a preview for the upcoming Spider-Man and I'm like, wait a minute, where's Tobey Maguire? I'm not ready to give him up yet. How can there possibly be a new Spider-Man? So I
0: I totally get it. (laughs) So things I like about this particular episode, here's some things that were revealed that I think apply to all of the ands. We have seen now her ability to spend a convincing yarn and we can see how it would be a survival skill, which we don't necessarily get in the Fellows version, right? Her resourcefulness, Diana even says it on the nose. I'd never have thought of selling poems for money. How much Matthew really loves her, we can't dispute that that is a quality that transcends your format. Mm -hmm. How much Marilla really loves Matthew, for one thing, she falls apart at the beginning because she thinks Matthew's... Laying in a ditch with a heart attack. I like that we get a bit of the outside world. It's the context. It's the placed-in history of Anne of Green Gables. It's not all just this little enclave of red dirt roads and shining waters. You know, there's real life. There's cargoes of radishes going down to Massachusetts. There's people drinking out of the same tin cup, which is gross. There's (laughs) pawn shops. There's a real world behind this real world, and I liked that. I was too busy trying to figure out which my
1: favorite quote was. What's
0: your oh? What's your favorite quote?
1: Well, I, I went back and forth and I'm going to have to go with she's my daughter because it got the most emotion out of me.
0: Okay, so then I have to go with something that made me laugh so much because I'm like, what did we even put this in for? And I don't like this biscuit. Then don't eat it. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the story. And I just thought it was so funny. I know. I didn't take any of the poetry to heart, any of this emotional... I mean, I liked it. I actually liked this episode a lot. Many won't, I think. Oh, no. I agree
1: with you completely. This Of all the episodes, this one's going to be the most controversial. For sure.
0: How many glasses of raspberry cordial? So I gave it two ratings. I gave it a 7 out of 10 for myself. And then I gave it a 1 out of 10 for book people. <laughs> Okay, that's funny. I gave it a seven, flat
1: seven, um, because I felt that my, I, we'll call them book people, would um, have such a hard time with it. So it w- I took off empathy points. And I took off a point because, and I knew this was going to happen because I rated the first episode so high because it was so magical to me. It was new and magical, but this episode did not have that same magic for me. So I gave it a seven flat out.
0: So I've been deputized to ask you if you have any further rules and regulations pertaining to our drinking game.
1: Yes, there is an Anne of Green Gables official drinking game rules on our website. There will be things that people, everybody takes one sip for. There will be things that everybody takes a thirsty Rachel Lind glug for. There is a bosom friend one sip share Rule, And there is a Josie Pye drink where you're able to get somebody at the table to drink the entire glass of something red-hued that nobody else has to drink.
0: Man. All right. That Josie Pye is a piece of work. We're going to meet her next time. And yes. then we thought we would share just a couple of instances of feedback from the first episode.
1: Someone with an Etsy shop called Carrot Top. It's paper goods with a woman author theme wrote us a very delightful email. What she wanted us to know is that the people that are living in Maud Montgomery's house know that they are living in Maud Montgomery's house. We talked about it during her episode. We were like, well, I wonder if people know that. And yes, yes, they do. So she wanted us to know that. On our first recap episode, we were wondering what Rachel Lind was doing in the window. Was she knitting or was she sewing? And a quilter named Randy wrote to us and she was so excited that she saw something that she knew about. She took a screenshot and Rachel was actually putting together a quilt block pattern. They're half square triangles. So it wasn't knitting at all. It was quilting. Cool. And a woman whose name I'm going to mispronounce is J-U-C-I-N-T-A, Ucinta. She's from Australia and she was disappointed that I don't like parsnips. So she sent us a recipe how to roast them and make them sweet. And I have to tell you, that's why I don't like them is because they're sweet. All the recipes in the world are not going to get me to like parsnips or Brussels sprouts.
0: But thank you for trying. Well, I love Brussels sprouts. I love them, Sam I am. So maybe I will. I'm going to go on a quest. I will find a parsnip. I guess I've never looked. <laughs> they could have been there all along. And I passed them for 20, 30 years and I've never seen them. But um, I promise this week I will buy a parsnip.
1: And then maybe you can attempt to cook it or are you going to give it to Chris?
0: Um, I can put it in the oven like I did those beets, right? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just- Put it in the oven and set it for like some absurdly long amount of time and then go do something else and then you come back and there it is. Hey, presto. I'll
1: give you the recipe that listener sent us. Okay. And you can cook it that way. Excellent. I got nothing else.
0: All right. You know, that's as far as I can go into <laughs> the minutiae of uh, Anne with an E, episode two. Stand by, the next thing you hear, let's see, oh, the next thing you hear from us will be Anne, with an E, episode three, shortly followed by our regularly scheduled episode. Lots to do, lots to do! So, who needs sleep? We don't need sleep. If you would like to join the discussion, please join us at Facebook, at The History Chicks, or Banter with Susan on Twitter, at The History Chicks with an X. You can look at all the L.M. Montgomery things we've been referring to over on Pinterest, where there is a board for each and every woman in history we have ever covered. And um, while you're there, maybe you'll discover someone that you would like to learn more about and go back into our back catalog on our website, thehistorychicks.com, and listen to those. So thank you so much for going through this very long recap of episode two, and we will see you next time for episode three. Thanks for listening. Bye.